0: Let's read the scriptures together. Before Pastor Andrew comes to, to preach, I'm going to read from the book of James. Would you please turn to the book of James? It's right near the back of your Bible, to the right of the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 2 of the first chapter, rereading of what Pastor Paul, who's away this week, preached from last week. And Andrew will preach from beginning of verse 5. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, Lord, gather us, I pray, together as your people with your rod and your staff upon us, I pray. Bless our families with their children as they participate through this part of worship. Give us ears to hear and, Lord, a heart to give ourselves over entirely to you again. Bless Andrew, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.
1: church. You'll want to keep your Bibles open to James chapter 1. Like many of you here, I have got kids. I have two young kids and we're right in the middle of teaching them to do everything. (laughs) Everything they need to know for life that will benefit them not only in the immediate, but also for the rest of their lives. Things like walking and eating and chewing before you swallow when you eat, and all these kinds of things that kids are going to need to know. Uh, my daughter, who will be too soon, she's able to walk now, but while she was learning to walk, she, uh, it was a process, and like all of us who at some point learned to walk, it's a process of stumbling and tripping and falling and making mistakes and doing it over again until eventually we've got it, and walking is a necessary thing for life. And so uh, there's, as a parent, there's a great deal of wisdom in knowing where this line is, but there's a certain amount of risk or a certain amount of danger that you have inevitably got to put your kids in front of in order for them to be able to make those mistakes and fail before, that they, before they can learn. And it doesn't make you a bad parent, but it means that you're setting your kid up for success so that they can learn and that they can grow. And so ultimately, the tests test that you put them through and the trials that they go through are for their good. And that's true for, for us as, as not only humans, just simply mere humans, but also as children of God, is that we go through tests and trials in life. And just like a one year old or two year old who's learning to walk, it's for their good. Going through trials and tests are also ultimately for our good. And so, as we're in this series in the book of James, uh, we learn that James, as a bit of a recap from last week, James is writing to uh, a bunch of Christians who are recently converts, most of them from Judaism, from, from being uh, Jewish. And so they're first century Christians, they're early Christians, and they're living in a world not unlike ours where there's lots of evil around and there's lots of confusing messages. And so they're asking questions like, how do we follow Jesus in this world that we live in, in this broken world? How does our faith in Jesus actually work? What does it, what does it look like to live by faith and to walk in wisdom and integrity in everything that we say and we think and we do. How does this actually work? And so a couple of assumptions that James establishes or that are, that are assumed to be the case for this, this group of Christians that he's writing to is a few things. And the first is that they're going to face tests and trials. And as we looked at last week, the first few verses of this book, it says that we can count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, assuming that trials are going to happen. He says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. And so the fact that life is hard is assumed. And if you're like me, your life is not always easy. There's hard things that we go through, and it comes in seasons. And lots of times you don't understand what is happening and why why the life you're living is the way that it is. But James tells us that these tests, these trials that we go through are for our maturing, for our growth as Christians. He says that we can count it joy because they produce steadfastness or endurance, depending on which Bible you read. But steadfastness and endurance are qualities that when they begin to have their full effect, when they grow like a plant, their result is that you become perfect and complete. And it says that you'll lack nothing. This is from the first two chapters, the first two verses of the first chapter. And so that's why you can consider trials pure joy because there's a light at the end of the tunnel in the trials that you're enduring. There's a point, there's a purpose, and those purposes are good. It's the, the ends of these trials you're going through ultimately are for your strengthening and it's for God to build uh, up strength in you. It's for your maturing as a follower of his. Now life is, that's what, that's what life as a Christian is. We call it sanctification, which just simply means you become more like Christ all the time you're never done it's a journey and every day when you wake up you can expect that life uh, won't be perfect things will be broken all around you but your trials should be counted as joy because it brings about that process of Christ-likeness. but when you find yourself in these trials when you don't know what to do what do you do where do you go what do you do when you don't know what to do there's things in life that'll come about that'll come your way that nothing possibly could prepare you for what do you do when you're under financial stress such that you're about to you're at the breaking point of of uh, debt that seems insurmountable or some of you there's discord or dissension between you and your children or even your grandchildren and they refuse to speak to you or what if your reputation is on the line and maybe your your place of work because you've been accused of something whether rightly or falsely accused your whole reputation is at stake and you wonder what's going to happen or you get uh, unfortunate positive test results back from the doctor and that phone rings and you pick it up and suddenly like that, your life is changed. Or worse, sickness is, is present and like we see this morning, people pass away. Glenn Moffitt is now left without his wife of almost 50 years. You can't take a class for that. You can't read a book on facing trials. And so what do you do when you don't know what to do? This text, the passage that Barry, Pastor Barry read for us, as a good way of reorienting the compass of our heart that so often wants to wander and, and find our own way through life this text centers us and grounds us with what we need to do and where we need to go james 1 5 says if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask god in other words god's the source of your wisdom and in order to understand the purposes and the the reasons behind the trials and tests that you'll face in life Two things James tells us are necessary. And those are the two things that we'll study for the rest of our time this morning. Those two things are wisdom and faith. So you need to ask God, first of all, for a wisdom that is unending. And second of all, you need to ask for that wisdom with a faith that is unwavering. So wisdom that's unending and a faith that is unwavering. Let's consider the first. Uh, We've got some kids in the room, so perhaps you've seen the movie Aladdin Uh, Aladdin's not real I'm sorry but if it were and genies were real and a genie came up to you and said what can I do for you what one thing can I give you my first instinct is to ask for a bunch of stuff or maybe more wishes to ask for more stuff that's always the right answer but if you could ask for one thing if a genies were real and they came out and said what would you what could I do for you how many of you do you honestly think you would ask for wisdom See, this happened to Solomon, not a genie, but God says to Solomon, what can I do for you? What can I give you? And Solomon replies, wisdom. And I find that curious because in our culture, wisdom's not really that highly sought after. It's countercultural. We care, honestly, we care, at least I certainly do care, way too much about what other people think of me. I used to work in in construction and uh, we would do lots of odd jobs and uh, we were kind of the guys who you'd call and we could sort of do it all or that's... That's what people thought. <laughs> and so when we got to uh, a certain job that I didn't know what to do, I would ask my boss, hey, how do I, how do, I do this? And sometimes he wouldn't know either. It's the first time he had done it. And really trustworthy guy, in all honesty. But he would say, Andrew, fake it till you make it. <laughs> as long as the client or the customer thinks that you know what you're doing, then that's good enough. Just do your best, fake it till you make it. And I think we live in a bit of a fake it till you make it kind of world where we, we desire things like strength and resources and money and knowledge in order to be able to get us to that point where we think we need to be or at least let people think that we know what we're doing so as long as people are none the wiser we can fake it till we make it but biblical wisdom as is given to us all throughout Scripture particularly the Proverbs and this book that we're looking at this morning the book of James is tells us that wisdom should be prized should be sought after it says in Proverbs 3 blessed is the one who finds wisdom And the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. See wisdom, it's not cool because you can't pull it out and show people, but wisdom is to be sought after more than anything else, more than silver, more than gold, more than riches. It's a quiet, humble uh, posture that seeks God's uh, discernment and God's, what, what God would have you do. It isn't something that you can tangibly see or show off or, or count or put on a chart, how much wisdom you have. Knowledge is wisdom, but it's, wisdom is more than just simply knowledge. Sorry, knowledge is wisdom, but wisdom is more than just simply only knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge that's been applied in the right context, that it's lived out, it's acted upon. For example, where knowledge uh, analyzes circumstances or data or numbers or, or uh, bank accounts or flow charts. Wisdom looks beyond that and analyzes the circumstances through the lens of God's purposes. It doesn't care about the numbers. doesn't care about the odds. Wisdom says, I want to know what God thinks of this and what God would have me do. Where knowledge and understanding seek to gain control of a cer- certain circumstance, whether it's a sickness or Or the odds that are against you. Wisdom finds peace knowing that God ultimately is in control. Wisdom looks beyond the present circumstances. And people who are full of godly wisdom are the kind of people, I don't know about you, but these are the kind of people that I want to be around. Is there something refreshing about being around someone who's truly wise? Uh, Every week I get to sit in Pastor Barry's office. And he's wise. And I leave no matter what I'm facing. Whenever I walk out of the door of his office, I feel better. It's amazing what godly wisdom can do. And godly wisdom isn't something that's a skill that you can work at, that you can just practice hard enough or try hard enough. But it's given to you only by God. And it's, it allows you to navigate life with sound judgment and to navigate life making decisions that are pleasing to God. It's not something you can buy or earn or try really hard to get. It's only given by God. And so the question then is, well, how do we gain it? If we all agree wisdom is a good thing, then how... Do we gain wisdom? Where do we get it from? Proverbs 9, the verse we looked at at the very beginning of the service, Proverbs 9, verse 10, says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you need wisdom, fear the Lord. Look to him. Walk in his ways. Obey his commandments. And that is the beginning of wisdom. If you've ever called your service provider, maybe for your cell phone or your cable at home, and you're not happy with the service you're getting, you're probably not happy with the first person who you talk to either. Because oftentimes they're limited with what they can do. And, or you get the robot and press 5 for this and press 3 if you want to hang up. But what you do is you say, I want to speak to the person above you. I want to speak to your manager. And sometimes that manager can do a little bit more for you. But oftentimes you need to speak to their manager. And if you've never done this, that's, that's the secret, by the way. Just keep asking to talk to their manager. But eventually you, get, you make your way to the top and you speak to the person who's in control and who has authority to do things and who has authority to grant whatever your needs are. And so when we need wisdom, when the Bible says, seek the Lord, fear the Lord, and that's the beginning of wisdom, it truly means that we've now, we've reached the top of the wisdom chain. That's it. This is where wisdom comes from. We can talk and request wisdom from someone who can actually help and actually meet our needs. And he tells us to ask. Simply ask. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most, one of the most well-known sermons Jesus gives. He says this on the subject of asking god for things which one of you if his son asks him for bread will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish will give him a serpent if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask you see it's not complicated it's very simple god tells you to ask him And so we ask, and when you do, God doesn't give you something in place of that. He gives you exactly what you need. It's not earned, but it's given generously to those. Wisdom is given generously to those who first of all recognize their need for wisdom and come to God with a humble posture of simply asking their heavenly father. Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? Now, if you've ever been in a spot where you're not sure what to do and you pray, oftentimes that's our first response. And for some of us, the only time we do pray when we feel like we need to call 911 or, you know, pull the alarms. We, need, we, we just need to pray, do something. If anyone can help, maybe it'll be God. And so for some of us, that's the only time we turn to the Lord. But when we need wisdom, I'm reminded of a friend of mine who about five years ago, uh, they, him and his wife had their, their first child, and they named him Ben. And like any parent with a brand-new baby uh, boy, were delighted, thrilled. They took a great deal of joy in him, and they cherished him, and they uh, dressed him up all cute and had everything that they needed. They were great parents. But they began to notice as the weeks and months went on that their son Ben wasn't meeting some of the milestones that they, that they would expect, things like eye contact and smiling and some certain social and developmental landmarks that babies should meet Ben wasn't meeting and so they brought him into their physician who took a look at him and referred them to a specialist and referred them to another specialist and they went for a test and another test. And Over the, those coming weeks and months, they were asking a lot of questions and they took him to BC Children's Hospital and my friend was missing work and things were going on and there was a lot of uncertainty and they weren't sure, what, first of all, what, what, what was this going on with their son. They found out after a number of series of tests and uh, long periods of waiting that Ben was born with a, a genetic mutation and so the way his the way his DNA was made up was slightly different than what a normal baby would be born with which Was gonna then have lifelong implications for him And so they never, they didn't know if he'd be able to walk if he'd be able to talk if he'd be able to have a Conversation or watch sports or do well in school. They had no idea and so with their young son, kind of, in a lot of ways, not in their, not in their control, I, I asked my friend Greg one day, I said, Greg, how, how are you doing? We didn't have kids at that point. And so I wondered, how does a dad, who has absolutely no control over this situation, how does he get up in the morning? What do you turn to? And so I asked Greg, how are you doing? What, what do you make of this? And he said to me this, he said, despite everything that we don't know, despite all this uncertainty, he said, we're asking God, my wife and I are asking God to show us, what his purposes are in giving us Ben. And so Greg wasn't fixated on, on the circumstance, but he knows that Ben was given to them for a time. And I can't imagine being raising a child with uh, needs that are above and beyond what children just ordinarily need, which is a lot. And so my friend and his wife began to care for Ben and give him all their needs and they needed to buy all kinds of extra equipment that they weren't anticipating and probably gave up a lot of dreams and hopes that they had for their son because God had other plans. You see, joy in the midst of suffering is only found through the lens of God's wisdom and God's purposes. It's not necessarily an immediate download from the cloud where we say, Lord, I need your wisdom and poof. We get his wisdom because still to this day Ben who's now about five years old still continues to to grow and develop in ways that um, in some ways beat a lot of odds (laughs) uh, clinically but also for them he's it's a great burden it's a great challenge it's a great trial that the Lord has called them to so though it's not an necessarily an immediate download of information each day Greg turns to the Lord and says Lord I need wisdom it's an increasing and continual process to discover the Lord's purposes for you and your trials. It's not immediate necessarily. But wisdom is unending. You're not fully wise. Even the most wise people. The wise old men. The wise grandfathers in your lives. They're not fully arrived at wisdom. Wisdom is unending. It keeps coming. God continues to bestow and to lavish his wisdom on those who ask. Like my friend Greg. So we simply need to ask. But there's more to that verse verse six through eight of our text this morning says but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the lord he is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways so ask yes but we need to ask with a faith that is unwavering we don't just ask like we throw out the request like sometimes we do like a song request to a radio station but we can expect our God who says he's great we can expect a great God to act greatly a few weeks ago we had a month ago or so we had neighbors move in uh, new neighbors on our street and so I went over and introduced myself and one of the things I said almost automatically was welcome to the neighborhood if there's anything you need you let me know (laughs) <laughs> I did mean it, really. But it's a polite thing to say, right? To new neighbors, you total strangers, you want to make them feel comfortable. If there's anything you need, you let me know. But what if they needed something more than I was willing to give? <laughs> they haven't come to my door since, but maybe they will. Who knows? But we say that, don't we? We, we? we flippantly say, yeah, let us know. I'm here to help. Whatever it is you need, I'm here for you. God's offer to us isn't flippant. You can take him up on his word. Like if my neighbors come to my house, I'll be glad to see them, but I'll probably only be able to meet a certain amount of their needs. But God's offer wasn't said in passing or just to be polite. God's not just trying to be nice. God is fully expecting you to come to him with the wisdom that you need to face the trials that he's putting you through. And he means it. So not only does he offer you to go to him, but he will answer you and you can take him up. On that offer faith isn't blind see we don't just follow God because you know we read his Bible and he seems like a cool guy and he's worth having faith in it's not a mystical kind of abstract faith no we have we have the assurance of God's Word we have the history of the church we can see how God has been faithful to the nation of Israel and to his people ever since and he comes through on his promises our faith isn't blind but it's rooted in God's character which is proven to be faithful God can be trusted because he's trustworthy and we should take him up on that. So therefore, because God wants us to ask and he's a good God and he wants good things for us, we can ask confidently and expectantly. Notice the word, it says that if you doubt, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. You know what it means to be double-minded? It doesn't mean that you're two-faced or you have a good side and a bad side, and you know you've got this secret identity. Double-minded simply just means that you have, you have a backup plan. <laughs> you have one foot in both camps. And so you have one foot firmly planted in your God camp that your God will provide, but if he doesn't, I've got a backup plan. I'm double-minded. It's a plan B, or a plan of, of recourse in case God doesn't deliver. And oftentimes, as, as humans, we want that, because we want to be in control, don't we? We like to have things figured out, and we like to think a few steps ahead in the event that God doesn't actually pull through for us. But the kind of faith that God asks for us is exclusive. And what I mean by that is that it's, it's singular. Faith in God and no one else, or nothing else. This is the problem of the church. Read, read the first part of the scripture. <laughs> They're double-minded. They were idolaters. They wavered. They wandered. They looked to other things. And God says, no, look to me. Ask me alone. He says, if you're double-minded, you've got a foot in both camps. And being double-minded in doing so is like a wave being tossed around by the wind in the open sea. Have you ever been in a boat and run out of fuel <laughs> or forgot your oars? or life jackets or just had a mechanical breakdown you begin to think oh dear <laughs> how much food do i have will the pumps work to drain the water you begin to you begin to panic a little bit you're in the open water and it's foolish so to ask god and doubt is to be like be like a wave tossed in the sea or be like a stranded unprepared boater who's being tossed around in the open water it's foolish So if you ask and doubt, you can be, expect to become exactly like that. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And he goes on to say that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's greatest wisdom. So whatever your plan B is, whatever your recourse is, I promise you, it won't compare to God's wisdom and God's faithfulness for you. We need to ask in faith without doubting. Our faith has to be unwavering. There's a story in the book of, uh, the book of Luke, chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. But there's a story of, a, of an elderly woman who has the kind of faith that I think James gets at here. In chapter 8, verse 22, Jesus is on his way to a man named Jairus' house. And Jairus comes to Jesus and says, My, he, He's a religious leader, he's highly esteemed. And he says to Jesus, My daughter is sick and she'll likely die. I need you to come and heal her, please. And he begs with Jesus, and Jesus says, okay. And there's lots of crowds around, and it's busy, and Jesus has lots of places to go, and lots of people to see, and things to do. But he makes a point to go to this man named Jairus' house, and on his way, says that there's a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, since she was an elderly woman, and she had spent her entire living on physicians, and she had nothing left. And frankly, probably no hope, either, in getting better. Her whole life, and 12 years of being sick, having this discharge of blood, and so in the midst of all the crowds, this woman gets close to Jesus and she's just simply able to grab the hem of his garment, just the train, the tail of, his, of the robe that he was wearing. And Jesus stops immediately and he begins to ask around, hey, what's happened? Who's touched me? And his disciples are like, chill out, man. Look at the crowds. So probably a lot of people bumped into you. And he says, no, who touched me? He says, I felt the power immediately leave me. Who touched me? And this woman... Probably a little embarrassed, probably a little afraid, a little scared of what she had just done. Here's what it says in verse 46. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You see, she didn't have a great amount of faith. She didn't have buckets of faith that she dragged with her to this party in the street she had probably no faith or very little at at best but it was the type of faith that she had that james wants us to understand an unwavering certain assured faith that believes that god will do what he says he's going to do it's an expectant faith so you can expect great things from god you can And when you do that, God will not, as James says, revile or reproach you, those who ask. He will not put you to shame. He's not gonna laugh at you and make you feel bad for how foolish you are. You remember the story of the the prodigal son who asks his dad for his inheritance early, which is all but literally spitting in his face, saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my money, and I'm out of here. And he does that, and he goes, and he spends all of his money on frivolous living. And when he realizes the foolishness of his decisions... He comes crawling back and on his way back he's preparing to just get an, ear, hear, to hear an earful from his dad. And he's embarrassed and he's ashamed and he wishes only to be a servant in his father's house. And says, I'd be better off at least if I could just be a servant. I won't be your son, I'll, you can just pay me as a servant. You remember what, what happens with the father? Does he grab his son by the ear, drag him in and sit him down and give him a lecture? No, it says that the father saw him a long way off. In fact, he was waiting for his son to come. And when he was a long way off, it says that he began to run towards his son and is the biggest embrace you've ever seen. And the father says, let's round up the best of what we have. We're having a party. My son is back. So this is the kind of God that we serve. When we ask him, he's waiting for us. He will run to us. He's not going to laugh at you. He's not going to make you feel bad. He's not going to put you to shame, the fact that you lack wisdom. He knows you'll lack wisdom. He knows I'll lack wisdom. And he wants us to come to him. And this is maybe one of the greatest things about serving the God that we do is that he doesn't ever require anything from us that he won't first give us. So he says, you'll lack wisdom and I'll give it to you. (laughs) Or to Abraham, he said, sacrifice to me your son Isaac. And God made a way. God God brought, brought a sacrifice. God makes a way. He doesn't expect anything from you or require anything from you that he won't first provide So in conclusion we simply come to god we ask for wisdom in order to be able to endure the things that he's called us to do and in asking we can ask boldly and confidently knowing that he'll answer knowing that he'll provide in order to equip us with the wisdom needed to endure the trials so that we can maintain a heaven-sent joy in the things that he calls us to in a few moments we'll approach the lord's table And see that Jesus truly is the wisdom of God sent to us. Before we do, I'd like to close in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you indeed provide us with all of our needs. And we were wretched and hopeless and apart from you. And so, Father, thank you that you've made a way in your wisdom. You sent us your Son. And so in the midst, Lord, on this side of eternity and in the midst of our trials and our tribulations and our afflictions and our, the tests that you bring about, Lord, we pray that you would help us to maintain a perspective that honors you, a perspective that allows us to execute good discernment and judgment. I pray that that wisdom would be unending, Lord, for all of us as we approach you and ask with a faith that's unwavering. Lord, be with us.